name is Nancy Farrow, also known as Mama Lou, and I'm the founder of Epic Experience. Epic Experience mission is to empower adult cancer survivors and thrivers to live beyond cancer. I hope that as you listen to Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer, you find hope, healing, and empowerment. Through stories and education, we aim to guide those impacted by cancer, and more importantly, offer love and support to anyone out there who needs it. This is Beyond Cancer. So today's episode, I'm really excited. We have um, Dr. Kondapali with us, and she is a fertility expert, and she's going to be sharing with us some things about cancer and fertility. So Dr. Kondapali, thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to have you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled about being with everyone this afternoon. Well, let's start off. If you don't mind, I'm just going to let you tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been doing this, where you're fun, one fun fact, whatever you feel like sharing with us. Well, you know, cancer and fertility is really uh, my passion. And it really developed when I was a resident. I did my training in Chicago. um, And then I did a fellowship in Philadelphia before I came out to Colorado. Um, I've been in Denver since I finished my fellowship in 2011. And I was really recruited to Colorado because of my expertise in oncofertility, which is fertility in uh, cancer patients. I've been at my current position at the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicines um, since 2014, um, and I see almost all of the cancer patients within our practice here. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. A fun fact about me <laughs> is uh, in the spirit of our recent Halloween holiday, awesome. my favorite candy are Reese's Easter eggs. Wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Thank you so much. Well, let's let's dive in. And if you're watching today and you have questions, please put them in the comment section and we will throw them up there and we will ask Dr. Kondapali as we go. Okay. So first, let's start off. We're talking about fertility and cancer. So what options are out there for preservation in terms of fertility? Great question. You know, I meet a lot of young cancer patients at the time of their diagnosis. It can be an overwhelming experience because they're kind of hit in the face with this diagnosis and thinking about starting a family and even, you know, their ability to have a family in the future may just, um, you know, it just seems so overwhelming. So I see a Mm -hmm. lot of patients and thinking about future fertility. The options that I can provide to patients for men and, and boys that have gone through puberty, the mainstay of fertility preservation is really sperm banking. So that's a process where men um, or post-pubertal boys can produce a sperm sample and that sperm can be frozen. Um, Once the Mm -hmm. sperm is frozen, it actually stays frozen and healthy, you know, indefinitely. There's really no shelf life on frozen sperm and the viability a year from now will be the same on the viability a decade from now. So that's the main thing and pretty simple for men to really, to come in and produce sperm sample and freeze. For women, it's a little bit more complex. The two main uh, 
fertility preservation treatment options that we have for women, one is called egg freezing. So we mm-hmm. can have women go through uh, some hormone treatments and we can do a surgical procedure where we can collect or harvest eggs from the ovary. And those mm-hmm. unfertilized eggs can be frozen in time. If a woman is has a partner or is willing to use a potential sperm donor, we can fertilize the eggs and create mm-hmm. embryos and freeze. Both of them are great options and each one has its pros and cons. And for a particular patient, I can review with them what might be a good fit for them. There's another option that used to be considered experimental where you can actually freeze a portion of the ovary. So all of the eggs in the ovary are actually on the surface of the ovary. Um, The ovary, if you can imagine, almost looks like a walnut. And the surface is called the cortex. And we have thousands of eggs on the surface of the uh, ovary. The depth of the surface is only a couple of millimeters. So you can almost imagine if it's like the skin of a grape, all of those eggs are on the outside surface of the uh, ovary. So that you can actually remove the top layer of the ovary and freeze that. That's called ovarian tissue freezing. It used to be considered experimental, but no longer. It's standard of care. Um, That tissue can be frozen. Then a a woman, once she's gone through her treatment and is in the survivorship phase, we can actually have her come back. And that tissue almost serves as a tissue graft. It can actually be transplanted back into the body. And then a woman can give a pregnancy. Now, typically, we will still need to do some assisted reproduction, even if we put it back into the pelvis. But that's an alternative option for some women. So you're saying if both ovaries were removed? Actually, you don't even have to remove the the entire ovary. Um, so some, the... Yeah, so you can actually wow. just remove the outer layer of the ovary. You know, on a centimeter of tissue, there's hundreds of eggs that yeah. are in such a small pa- space. So I do have some women where we don't even have to remove an entire ovary or entire um, surface. We can remove half of it or a third of it and just freeze that. So the technology has really advanced remarkably um, over the past, you know, decade to two decades. And um, one of the things that makes my field so exciting and why I decided to go into reproductive medicine is that um, if you think about in vitro fertilization, Mm -hmm. IVF, which is a process of fertilizing eggs outside the body, IVF was originally um, started about 42 years ago. So it has not been around for that long. So the amount of advancement that's occurred in my field um, over the past four decades is mind-blowing. I mean, just, it's amazing to me. So basically what you're saying, if they don't remove the whole ovary, do they take that skin, so to speak, and put it back on? I mean, Absolutely. That's so incredible. It's pretty amazing. So there's a surgical technique that we can take that, that tissue after it's been frozen. You can actually revive it by essentially thawing it. So we take it out of the freezer and kind of wake up that tissue. Wow. And then we create a little tissue graft that then can be essentially transposed on the old ovary. Incredible. So for all of those, for both the sperm banking yeah. and the and the options. What are the 
risks involved? What are the chances of yeah. success and all of those yeah. kind of things? That's a great question. So sperm banking, um, the risks, you know, are very minimal. Uh, a man or a, a adolescent boy would need to be able to produce a sperm sample. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's usually an ejaculated sperm sample. Um, if a, a a uh, gentleman is not able to do that. There are some mm -hmm. other procedures where we can actually surgically aspirate sperm okay. with very minimal anesthesia or even local anesthesia. That would be an alternative option. Um, with frozen sperm, the two different options, if, if a, a patient decided to use that sperm in the future, we can actually thaw that sperm and use it for a technique called intrauterine insemination or IUI. That's where we can thaw the sperm and then we can place it into the uterus mm -hmm. um, through a little straw. The other, yeah, through a catheter or straw. And then we can allow for natural pregnancy to occur in the fallopian tube. The other option would be in vitro fertilization or IVF where we can fertilize um, the eggs outside of the body in a Petri dish. Right. Um, chances of pregnancy or success really depends on how healthy the sperm is. And one thing to keep in mind for a lot of cancer patients is that particularly for men who are very sick at the time of their diagnosis, mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for the sperm to count to be affected. Hmm. What I've seen is that when I've had some young cancer patients, they've been particularly sick, um, they have pretty aggressive cancer. When they do produce a sperm sample, it is possible that the sperm count is very, very low or hmm. even zero. Wow. Because the testes are really sensitive to what's happening in the rest of the body. Yeah. So when men are fighting off an infection, fighting off, um, you know, malignant or tumor cells in the body, there are signals that are sent to the testicle that says, hey, sperm production, not at the priority. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's like roll it back here. And so we do sometimes see that the sperm count is quite low or zero. Wow. Even if the sperm count is low, we, we will freeze any sample that we obtain. That sample could be used for something like IVF in the future. Um, and so part of the success rates for the frozen sperm will depend on how old the eggs are and how old the woman is. Oh, really? Not so much the sperm, but actually right. the eggs. Exactly, exactly. So one of the big differences between hmm. guys and girls is that um, boys start making sperm when they go through puberty, and men can make sperm well into their 70s or 80s. Right. Alternatively, girls are born with a finite number of eggs, and over our lifetime, we lose them. And right. as women age, the number of eggs declines, but also their eggs age. Unfortunately, so the older a woman is when we're trying to use this frozen sperm, let's say her partner went through cancer treatment, but was able to free sperm. I would be counseling her that her probability of success is also based on her age. Interesting. So the sperm itself, when it's frozen, doesn't lose its potency, so to speak. It does not. Whereas the right. woman, yeah, the egg. Yeah. Now, but you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that that's true if I had a female cancer patient who froze her eggs, 
or created embryos, the eggs and embryos are frozen in time. So even as she ages, it, the uterus doesn't age really until women approach their mid-40s. So if I had a young cancer patient who, let's say, for example, froze her eggs at age 26, but she waited until she was 36 years old to use those eggs, her uterus is not of concern to me as long as it's nice and healthy. And I'm feeling fairly optimistic because I have 26-year-old eggs that have been frozen in time. Right. Interesting. So in terms of success, I guess the the definition of success in this case would be pregnancy, right? I mean, that's the ultimate goal. Exactly. So of all of those things, freezing the sperm, freezing the eggs, freezing the embryos, yes. the main factor, if I'm hearing you correctly, is the age of the eggs. I mean, that obviously anything can happen, but. Correct. That is absolutely right. So for women, the biggest factor associated with our fertility, our ability to get pregnant either naturally, our ability to be successful with assisted reproduction, the number one factor is age at which time you're going through treatment. Right. Um, now, one other uh, thing is, is that sometimes women will ask me, is it better to freeze eggs? or freeze embryos. And really the difference is the viability in the future when you go to thaw them. Um, and so that the, the um, how good the freezing and thawing techniques are is really dependent on where you choose to do treatment. So this is one thing for the audience to really keep in mind. If this is something that's on your mind and it's something that you want to perceive or pursue, really doing your homework and taking a look at different um, fertility clinics that are in your local area um, is really important. So there's some good resources for um, folks to look at to compare fertility clinics because the overall success is really dependent on who's the person that's freezing my eggs and who's wow. the person that's thawing them. Interesting. Yeah. So it really has nothing to do with whether it's the embryo or the egg. Yeah. Now it's the viability, different. correct. Now the viability is slightly different. Now um, mm -hmm. my practice at CCRM, we were one of the first IVF clinics in the world um, to wow. successfully freeze and thaw eggs. So we've been doing it since 2007. In mm -hmm. our hands, about 95% of eggs that we freeze will be viable in the future when I go to thaw them. What was the percentage? 95%. Wow. Yeah, almost all of that. That is high, yeah. Very, very high. Um, in contrast, uh, our survival rate for frozen embryos is nearly 100%. It's about 99%. Wow. And the big difference is that an egg has one single cell versus an embryo who that has about 100 cells. So it's a much more robust structure. Um, wow. so that's why the viability is a little bit big, a little bit higher. So I think if the audience members are looking into some of these um, options, doing your homework and um, really asking questions about how long have they been freezing eggs or embryos, what's their success in thawing the eggs or embryos. Um, most other IVF clinics or fertility clinics started freezing eggs in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and so folks that have frozen their eggs, um, especially if you go to a practice or a clinic that hasn't, um, doesn't have a lot of experience, they may not have had anyone come back to use their eggs. So yeah. they may not even know. Gosh, I mean, I'm curious, this is pure curiosity. How long is the process of thawing? I mean, how long does that actually even take? Yeah, so it's a bit of a misnomer, even though we call it thawing. Um, when we freeze and thaw, um, 
eggs or embryos, where actually the freezing process causes the eggs or embryos to shrink because you're dehydrating the structure. So you're taking out all of the water from that structure and, and doing a technique called flash freezing or vitrification is the fancy word for it. It's, it's essentially plunging that egg or embryo into liquid nitrogen and it flash freezes it. And that's the technique that has really revolutionized our success with thawing eggs and embryos. Um, the thawing process is just rehydrating the egg or the embryo. Okay. So you're reintroducing um, hydration or water into that structure over the course of about 20 to 30 minutes. So freezing okay. is, is flash freezing and the thawing process usually takes about 20 or 30 minutes. These things, um, you know, eggs and embryos and sperm are very, very re resilient. And yeah. um, one thing to keep in mind is that there's really no shelf life on these. They don't get freezer burned. So the longer you keep them frozen doesn't mean that they're not right. going to be viable 20 years from now. Um, they really are frozen in time. That's incredible. So I'm sure there are many people who are watching and wondering, okay, this can't be cheap. Yeah. <laughs> what does insurance cover? Uh, yeah. Are there certain procedures they do cover and certain ones yeah. they don't? How is that? Yeah. I think that's such a complicated question. I yeah. think medical insurance, especially for some of uh, the folks that are watching today, just navigating the medical insurance you know, questions even with their cancer treatment probably has been a, a difficult yeah. too. And if you can imagine, the fertility side can be challenging as well. Yeah. It all depends on what kind of insurance a person has. Um, so there are some uh, some insurance plans that do have fertility coverage. So the specific insurance plan and, you know, taking a, talking to your um, insurance provider, or if you have insurance through your employer, talking to your HR department and getting, you know, um, an idea of what insurance uh, may cover is one um one place to start. Mm -hmm. The other thing that affects insurance coverage is where a person lives. There are now 18 states in the U.S. where there are mandates by their state government that does provide insurance coverage for various aspects of fertility treatment. I'm really excited to, to you know, be in Colorado because um, the state of Colorado became the 18th state in the country that has a mandate for insurance coverage for fertility treatment that includes fertility preservation mm -hmm. and for patients who have gone through treatment are now facing infertility issues. Um, so checking with your state to mm -hmm. see if it is one of the mandated areas. Um, we have a bill that was passed and signed into law in the state of Colorado as of uh, April 2020. It goes into effect on January 1st, 2022. Okay. So um, Colorado residents, if they have an, a private insurance plan that has this as a benefit, they are mandated to cover fertility services. Wow. So checking with your state. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, going and just looking online to see, does my state cover fertility benefits would be another great place to start. And is there a difference if it's fertility, like someone's having trouble getting pregnant just for whatever reason, or if that's specifically related to cancer treatment and cancer. Is there a difference in coverage? Are there questions that should be asked along yes. with 
lines. Okay. Yes. So I think um, a good starting point would be, you know, if you are seeking um, a consultation or, or um, trying to get some information and you meet with a fertility specialist like myself, um, they can be a friend to you and they can be an advocate. So mm-hmm. I have in my um, own practice and experience, I have had, um, I've appealed to medical insurances and said that there was a, a medical necessity for why mm-hmm. a patient needed to pursue fertility treatments, you know, based on their cancer treatment um, and based on our knowledge of infertility risks, mm-hmm. making an appeal to, me- to the medical insurance and saying that this is a person who's at high risk of infertility due to something that was out of their control because Mm -hmm. they're receiving other medications that will have this long stream or downstream effect. And so we've been able to, for a handful of patients, get medical coverage for it because we say that it's a medical necessity. So I think talking to a fertility specialist and, you know, using them as your advocate um, can be helpful. And it, it's just a series of uh, steps that a physician yeah. will go through. It oftentimes starts with the letter of medical necessity. And then it oftentimes has, it goes down the path of discussing it with the insurance company and things like that. I think it's worth while trying Definitely. Um, and then, you know, sometimes we can sway the insurance companies to have coverage for that. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. We have a couple of questions. So actually we have a, a comment that just says thank you for joining us thank you for your knowledge and your your passion awesome. and then um we have a question would you mind sharing what are the best first steps to get there's the question right there no, great. um to get fertility checked as a woman i'm approaching eight years out of treatment great question so a good first step would be um e you know for a woman you could talk to your gynecologist or your mm-hmm. primary care physician and say, hey, is there a way that I can see where um, where my fertility stands or um, really, you know, how many eggs do I have? Um, now, if they don't feel comfortable kind of knowing what test to order, then you would seek someone like myself. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. So my training path is after I went to medical school, I did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And then I went and did a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. And during my fellowship and residency, I developed this expertise in oncofertility. So you could also go straight to a fertility specialist. And for women, the testing that we would do is to get a sense of what's known as the ovarian reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about how women are born with a, you know, all the eggs that right. they'll ever have. That's known as the ovarian reserve. How many eggs do you have at any given time? And the way that we can test that is by doing some hormone testing, which are blood tests. Those are timed with a menstrual cycle. So the first day of a bright red bleeding or or, um, menstrual flow is always considered cycle day one. So a common question that I get is, how do I even know when my period starts? Well, (laughs) when you notice, because sometimes women will have some spotting and then they'll have a period. So first day of full Right red bleeding is cycle day one, and there are some hormones. One of them is called FSH. There's another hormone called LH. Those are two hormones that are released by our brain, and there's a special place in our brain called the pituitary that releases those hormones. Those are the hormones that essentially talk to our ovaries, get the eggs to grow, get us to ovulate. The ovary makes a hormone called estradiol. 
and a hormone called anti-malarian hormone or AMH. So if I test those four hormones, essentially I can see how our brain and ovary work together. Wow. Indirectly, it tells me about a number. Now it's not gonna tell me, um, I think Amanda asked this question, it's not gonna tell me that a woman has 200,000 eggs, but it will tell me, are these numbers in the range that I would expect for your age? Because we said that over our lifetime, we lose eggs. So an average number mm -hmm. for someone who is 22 years old is not what I would expect for someone who's 32 or 42. Right. It always has to be in context of age. Right. The other thing that we can do is an ultrasound. Take a look at the ovaries. Mm -hmm. Eggs are microscopic, so you can't see them with the human eye. But mm -hmm. eggs are in little structures in our ovaries known as follicles. Those follicles look like bubbles. So we just count up how many follicles I see <laughs> at any given month, and it's going to give me another piece of information regarding egg count. So those are a good starting point for women um, survivors who want to know where, where am I? Yeah. What are my numbers? Um, a similar question after treatment, is there a, let's say the woman has a, either in this case, not necessarily had to preserve her eggs, but is there a, a safe time that should pass before a woman gets pregnant or tries to become pregnant? Yeah. Whether it's whether it's actually in, you know reinserting or however it happens. Yeah. So when I get asked that question, the information or that guidance is going to be based on three different things. Number one is going to be having a conversation with your oncologist because your oncologist mm. is really going to know the the horizon or the progression or the risk profile in terms of risk of recurrence, what that interval looks like for any given types of cancer. Even though I, I, I take care of a lot of cancer patients, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, but I'm not an oncologist. Okay. So I don't know all the specifics on the cancer side. So I tell patients, let's have a conversation about this. Let's Get the input from your oncologist because they're really the expert on the cancer side. They'll give you advice about what they recommend as a good interval of time to wait before trying to start a family. I'll have input based on, you know, fertility testing. Mm -hmm. If you were able to do fertility preservation, what would that look like? And then the third component and an important component in this conversation, there are specialists known as maternal fetal medicine specialists. These are mm -hmm. obstetricians that specialize in women with a whole host of medical issues in thinking about how we can move forward with a safe and healthy pregnancy. So an MFM doctor is someone that I work really closely with. They're called perinatologists as well. And I have a great group of, of doctors um, that have so much experience in taking care of my cancer survivors. So all of my cancer survivors, when they come back to see me, whether they were able to pursue fertility preservation or now they are thinking about fertility testing and treatment, right. I have them see a maternal fetal medicine provider for some preconception counseling because um, as a fertility specialist, most times I can get people pregnant, but yeah. I want to ensure a safe and healthy pregnancy. Yeah. Getting the input from the MFM doctor will provide that for us. So it's the three components, oncologist, MFM, and myself. That's awesome. Um, now, one other question that someone had was, if someone's gone through treatment mm -hmm. and now they're not fertile, um, yeah. what are their options? Yeah. So what I talk to 
um, you know, survivors about is that there's just, there's so many ways of making a family and we want to come up with the best way of you achieving your dream. And sometimes that's using your eggs and sperm. And sometimes if that's just not possible, there are so many other options. So when I have male survivors who are azospermic, meaning that they've gone through treatment and their testicles are not producing sperm anymore, um, the options that we can talk about are um, using a sperm donor. That could Mm -hmm. be either a known sperm donor. So Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I do have patients who feel like they want to have some, you know, biological or genetic component to Mm -hmm. a future pregnancy. So it could be a a brother, a male cousin, someone Mm -hmm. else in the family that could be a sperm donor for them. There's also anonymous sperm donation. Mm -hmm. Um, There are sperm banks um, that uh, I will refer patients to, and we can use anonymous sperm donation for either intrauterine insemination or in vitro fertilization. And then there's also a great option is adoption for men as well. For women, if they go through infertility and they go through premature menopause and being able to use their eggs is not possible, there are egg donation that could be known or anonymous. And if a woman is deemed um, unsafe to carry a pregnancy and maybe um, it's just not safe for her, we're concerned because perhaps she's had pelvic radiation. And we know in that setting, the uterus just may not have enough blood flow to Mm -hmm. hold the pregnancy safely. Um, And she may require a surrogate or a gestational carrier for someone else to be able to carry a pregnancy for her. And then adoption is also a great option as right. well. So lots of different options um, that are available right. if a patient is infertile after they go through treatment. Right. Wow. If you're watching and you have questions, please uh, put them in the comments and we will have Dr. Kondapali answer them. Um, another, I think I skipped one about, oh, in terms of uh, getting pregnant, this was the, yeah. kind of the second part of that question that I forgot. Is there and this may be, like you said, there are three components and this may be where the mm-hmm. oncologist comes in. Is there a certain amount of time given having radiation or given having chemo? Is, are they, does it depend on which kind? Does it depend on how many? And I, I'm guessing that's an oncologist yeah. question. Yeah, it is. Um, but uh, yes, so it will depend a little bit on what types of uh, chemotherapeutic agents are used for treatment. Um, if it is radiation, what was the site of the radiation? What mm-hmm. do we think is the lateral spread of radiation to other reproductive organs, mm-hmm. whether it's the uterus, the ovaries, the testes? And so it will depend a little bit about, it will depend on what treatment was given and what the cumulative dose Um, But to piggyback off of that question, um, another question that patients will ask me is, you know, if I'm interested in a fertility assessment, what interval of time should I wait to do the testing? Um, And so many times I use for men, um, it would be too early to do a fertility assessment, which would be a semen analysis. So men produce a sperm sample and we can see Mm -hmm. how many sperm are present, what the movement of the sperm is, and we can get a sense of how healthy the sperm is by looking at the sperm under a microscope that's called a semen analysis. Um, I tell men it would be too early to do a sperm test um, within six months of their cancer treatment. That is the normal window of time 
in which recovery will occur. Yeah. And so I don't want to cause unnecessary stress, anxiety. If we yeah. do a human analysis, you know, a month after finishing chemotherapy, it is very yeah. likely that there will be zero sperm. For right. men, what happens is many times chemotherapy, um, once it's initiated, the sperm count does become zero. Mm-hmm. And it usually takes at least three to four months before we would see some sperm production. And that's because for men, there are stem cells within the testes that will Mm -hmm. constantly reproduce sperm. But with the introduction of chemotherapy or radiation, those those stem cells shut down. And then it takes a little bit of time to kind of wake them up. And in fact, it takes about 72 days to get from a stem cell to a mature sperm that would even be present in an ejaculate. So I advise men, I wouldn't recommend doing a semen analysis before six months and even up to 12 months is still considered the normal range of recovery. If a man hasn't recovered his sperm production after a year of completion of treatment, then I'm much more concerned about a a permanent infertility issue. For women, it's waiting at least six months before I would do the hormone testing and the ultrasound. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you. Let's see. We have another um, question. If your cycle is lighter or shorter post-treatment, is that an indicator that a woman is now infertile? Thank you for that question. Um, There was a really important medical study that came out. Now it's been about eight years or so that really debunked this myth that return of menses or changes in a menstrual cycle, having longer periods, shorter periods, correlates to underlying infertility. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. So what I would recommend is that if you're concerned about uh, your fertility status, I would recommend seeking a fertility specialist to do the hormone testing in an ultrasound um, Mm -hmm. because menstrual cycles and whether they return or they don't return is a very poor indicator of underlying fertility status. So I'm not worried. Yeah. And there are times, you know, if a woman doesn't get her period after she finishes chemotherapy or radiation, it doesn't make me worry that she's infertile. Hmm. On the flip side, if a woman gets regular menstrual cycles, it doesn't give me reassurance that she's that she is. Yeah. Correct. And that's why we have these objective markers like blood work, the hormones mm-hmm. we talked about, and the ultrasound that will give you a much better and much clearer perspective. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, regarding sperm count, yes. what are the common myths um, about what can lower a guy's sperm count? So, uh, I, so there's, I think, lots of <laughs> out there. Um, But one thing, a couple of things that we know are not myths, but actually do lower count would be um, excessive heat. So Mm -hmm. men who spend lots and lots of time in hot tubs, saunas, steam rooms, the testes are external to the body, whereas for women, our ovaries are inside our pelvis. So they're protected by Mm -hmm. our um, body. And so they're not as sensitive to temperature. But because the testicles are external to the body, heat is one of the biggest culprits on affecting sperm. So um, spending lots of time, especially as we're entering into the uh, winter months, can affect the sperm. It will decrease sperm count. We also know that tobacco use 
and marijuana use also decreases sperm count. So more and more states are legalizing the use of marijuana, including the state of Colorado. So it's a common question that I get with patients that come to see me in Colorado. Um, but there is data that sperm count and the movement or the motility can be de decreased with marijuana use that includes um either smoking it chewables right edibles, all of that interesting you know that tobaccos also um can decrease sperm count whether that's chewing tobacco or um cigarette tobacco use um the uh, it, so those are the biggest culprits that do affect interesting. Count. now another big thing is that um I do have men, especially cancer survivors who've gone through treatment and perhaps they are feeling lethargic, low energy, mm -hmm. they go and see their primary care provider, or they might even see a male urologist that specializes in um, on the male side, and they are offered testosterone. So testosterone injections can be a great remedy for low testosterone. But one thing um, to keep in mind is that when men get external sources of testosterone, their testicle will no longer produce that testosterone and therefore they become azospermic. They stop. Wow. So that's one of the myths that um, I do want to debunk today that being on mm. testosterone treatments, just to give you a little bit of a boost, will have an adverse impact on fertility and it will cause the sperm um, count to be zero. The testes, yeah. the cells in the testes that are responsible for sperm production are acutely sensitive to local testosterone production. Mm. And if your body is sensing that you're getting testosterone, through an injection or a pellet or some other source, it's going to tell the testes, those cells that make testosterone, hey, I got this. I don't make it. And if the testes are not making testosterone, then the sperm cells in the testicle will say, I have no source of testosterone, so I can't make sperm. Wow. Um, yeah. If a man stops their testosterone treatment, in about four months, we would see a recovery in mm. their testosterone, excuse me, in their um, sperm production. So it can be reversed. Interesting. Are there any other, um, another Somebody was wondering about Mountain Dew or motorcycling. Uh, no. yeah, I know nothing about Mountain Dew, so I wonder what's online or on the blog. <laughs> well, come on, it's Dr. Google. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I'm not aware of any correlation between Mountain Dew um, or, you know, any other type of beverage, um, in, you know, in terms right. of caffeinated beverage um, being associated with low sperm count. What about cycling? I know that I've heard that also. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So for the, the casual cycler, um, if you, you know, do um, leisurely cycling, those are not patients that I'm worried about. Um, more and more of us, especially with COVID-19, are using home gyms, which right. might include a stationary bike. You know, right. if you're getting a normal exercise on the bike. I'm not worried about that. Now I do take care of some extreme athletes. So I take care of, you know, professional cyclists. Right. And these are folks that are cycling 200 miles a week, 
easily. Yeah. You might do 200 miles on a weekend. <laughs> those, are the, those are the men where I am a little bit more concerned. And it's not because of the cycling per se, but because the testes are external to the body, when men are cycling, that's putting a lot of pressure with the bike seat on their testes. Interesting. And then um, if they're cycling outdoors and it's warm or even in the summer, then it's also a concern because of the heat. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Any other myths that you've heard of that are are indeed myths and are not true? Gosh, let's see. <laughs> um, I'll have to kind of think about that. There. Um, one other myth um, that we can dispel is about, you know, um, about caffeine use. So oh. you know, excessive caffeine use has not been associated with infertility, either on the male or the female side. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even American mm -hmm. College of um, Obstetrics and Gynecology does not um, state that caffeine has to be eliminated for women who are either trying to achieve a pregnancy or mm -hmm. even in pregnancy. So what uh, our professional organizations advise is that up to 150 milligrams of caffeine. So a, uh, an eight ounce serving of, um, of black coffee has about 80 milligrams of caffeine. Okay. Now, if you're getting a super size caffeine beverage, right. that's a whole different story, but normal size one or two cups of coffee, um, or I usually tell patients one to two eight ounce servings of caffeine is still considered to be safe as women yeah. are trying to get pregnant, even in pregnancy. So that's one of the myths that we can, we can bust. Perfect. <laughs> All right. If you're just joining us, we are talking with uh, Dr. Kondapali about fertility and cancer. And if you have any questions, please go ahead and put them in the comments. And I see we just got one more. Yeah. How long would it take for sperm to regenerate for someone who smokes marijuana regularly? Yeah. So a good timeline to think about is usually about four months. And that's for any type of sort of um, toxic exposure on the testes, whether that be chemotherapy, whether that's radiation, excessive tobacco use, or marijuana, hmm. or even testosterone, like testosterone injections. A good time frame would be we would um, discontinue the sort of exposure. And then I would expect in about four months for the um, sperm uh, stem cells to regenerate the sperm supply and it would be present in an ejaculate. So four months time frame would be a good um, interval for any type of exposure like that. Okay. And I'm curious, just because we haven't mentioned it, is, does alcohol have any kind of it does. On it. Okay. So there is some data, but now we're, you know, it's really with excessive alcohol use. Right. Um, there is data that, um, that excessive alcohol use, and that can be, you know, defined so differently. Right. But in general, what we think about is over 20 alcoholic beverages a week. We okay. do see some data that um, sperm count and the movement of the sperm can be impacted with that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then we have another question. How is your clinic operating um, during doing fertility testing during COVID? 
That's a great question. So, you know, at CCRM, we are um, taking extra precautions so that we can keep things as safe as possible for patients, safe for our staff. So the things that we have implemented in our practice is one, almost all of our patient visits are done with telehealth. So we have converted everything to video conferencing with patients. Um, the patients have been pretty receptive to that because they are able to do their consultation in the comfort of their home or their work environment. They don't have to travel into our office. Yeah. And for something, um, so for my field of medicine, a lot of the initial um, consultation can just be done by talking to a person. Yeah. An exam is not necessary at that initial visit. And what we would do is just sort of outline what our next steps would be and what testing we would want to have uh, done to get a fertility assessment. And then when a patient comes into our office, we Currently, we're requiring masks to be worn when they enter the office. We are having social distancing in our practice so that only patients that have an appointment at that time are permitted to come into the office. We're also limiting the number of people that are in the office at any given mm -hmm. time. We check temperature, do a questionnaire yeah. to assess for any symptoms or exposures to COVID-19. Um, we are spacing out our appointments for blood work and ultrasound, sperm testing. That allows my staff plenty of time yeah. to clean the equipment, disinfect the rooms in between patients. And then yeah. for those patients that are pursuing fertility treatment, we're actually testing them for COVID-19. So we that are doing COVID-19 PCR, which is looking for active infection yeah. uh, before we proceed with a fertility treatment. Yeah. Um, so we're taking some extra precautions because this is yeah. you know, the time that we live in. Definitely. Another question. Yeah. Is there a time frame of unprotected sex without getting pregnant that would be an indicator of needing fertility preservation help? And so they, they, she said that she has heard one year. And is there any data behind that? Yes. So there is data behind that in sort of a general population. It, it, it goes back to being, uh, goes back to one of the initial things that I talked about, which is the age of the eggs. Right. So for women who are under the age of 35, a reasonable time frame is 12 months of unprotected intercourse. And if she hasn't achieved a natural pregnancy, then we would do fertility testing. For a woman who is 35 years and older, then it is a min it's waiting six months. And that is because mm -hmm. as we get older, our eggs are right. eggs. We want to be a little bit more proactive and mm -hmm. um, assessing fertility, seeing if there's a way that some fertility treatments might be helpful for a patient. Now, I do modify that mm -hmm. for cancer survivors. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on how old a woman is now when, as she's thinking about starting a family. Right. And because um, cancer patients may have been exposed to chemotherapy, radiation, especially if your oncologist has told you that there's some fertility impact, then I think a four to six time frame across the board is very, very reasonable, even for younger women, to at least do some initial testing to see if yeah. there is a decline in their account that is much faster than what would be expected for her age. And then we would think about uh, maybe some fertility treatments. Thank you for the questions, everyone who is posting them. We really appreciate it. Um, there was one last question related to the sperm count. I don't want to forget. Yeah. Vitamins. Um, is there any kind of uh, vitamin that can help increase your sperm count? 
Great question. So unfortunately, we don't know of any vitamins that are available over the counter that really improve sperm count. There are some medications. So these are prescription Mm. strength medications. And a male fertility specialist like a urologist would be the appropriate person that could prescribe that medication. So there are some medicines that can be administered. Um, Those medicines to improve sperm count um, after we've done all the lifestyle modifications to tobacco, marijuana, excessive heat, um, excessive bike riding. There are some oral medications that can be given. Um, These are daily medications. There are some injections. They're not Mm. testosterone injections, but there are some other hormones that men can take Mm. to give them a boost on their sperm count. So yes. Now, if it's Mm. an issue with the shape of the sperm or the quality of the sperm, there are some over-the-counter vitamin supplements that can be helpful. CoQ10 is a great sort of natural antioxidant that can be helpful vitamin E, zinc. So there are um, some vitamin supplements that can be helpful um, to help with the quality or the shape of the sperm. Um, Our website, so if you um, find uh, ccrmivf.com, there is an area for male fertility. You might find some of those sources on some of the other vitamins. Um, The same is true for women. So there are some vitamin Mm -hmm. supplements that can you know, have some subtle improvements on the health of our eggs. So CoQ10, um, high doses of fish oil can be helpful. Vitamin E are some of the top ones there. And in both cases, the goal or the the result being hopefully a, a higher chance of actually conceiving. Like if the, right. if the quality of the sperm and the egg is better. Correct. Than the Correct. Correct. Right. Are there financial programs? Going back to the financial yeah. aspect. Are there programs or resources that can help where maybe, you know, if the insurance pays for part of it, Mm -hmm. are there programs that are available? There are. And yeah, that's a great question. Um, And a question that uh, oftentimes I get asked, there are some resources, particularly for cancer patients at the time Mm -hmm. of diagnosis. So most of the resources are available for cancer patients before they go through treatment. That is also the best time for fertility preservation. Um, Before a a patient has started any type of cancer treatment is the best time to either freeze eggs, freeze embryos, freeze sperm, because the the tissue that I obtained has never been exposed to chemotherapy. So we're less concerned about the impact of that that cancer treatment on um, what I freeze. So there are resources at the time of diagnosis. Um, A variety of different resources are available. Um, For example, and then there may be some resources that are specific to the fertility clinic where you seek treatment. So for example, in our practice, we do provide um, some uh, discounts to cancer patients at the time oh. of their diagnosis if they are pursuing sperm freezing, if they want to do egg freezing or embryo freezing. And yeah. there are some other programs through pharmaceutical companies where some of the medications for fertility preservation may be um, obtained through those programs. Um, there are less resources that are available for cancer survivors, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The focus has really been at the time of diagnosis and um, yeah. There are limited resources on the survivorship side. 
Mm. But this is another place where, you know, being, um, you know, finding a good fertility specialist that can be, be an advocate for you or finding someone like myself who has a lot of experience in the oncofertility space and kind of knows, um, you know, what resources are available can be really helpful for you. Yeah, I was wondering, mm-hmm. I mean, because be, depending on the kind of cancer, um, I would imagine that an oncologist that deals with, for example, testicular cancer or um, women's reproductive cancer might have some more understanding of what's out there, but someone who's dealing with lung cancer or anything else, maybe not. So would you recommend, rather than ask the oncologist, seek out a fertility specialist? Correct, correct. So I think that if you're interested in gaining more information, uh, because again, I'm sure your oncologist is so focused on the type of cancer, what's the most effective treatment, their goal is to get you you know, into the survivorship period. And um, they may not know the fertility side, just like I don't know the oncology side as well. So asking your oncologist if they haven't brought up, brought it up to you already, Mm -hmm. say, hey, you know, I'm really interested in a fertility consultation. um, And then they will be able to, you know, refer you to the right person. Now, one of the unique things about Mm -hmm. our practice at um, CCRM in Colorado is that, you know, we see a lot of patients that don't live in Colorado. So even as part of my practice, I see a lot of patients that live outside of Colorado or even live outside the United States. And as I take care of them just for their fertility needs, and the same is true for our, for cancer patients, I do get consults for patients that don't live in Colorado. And if they decide to pursue treatment, I've had patients that have traveled to um, the Denver area to do treatment with me. And since now everything is converted to telehealth, you know, it's just, it, I, I tell yeah. health visits for international patients just as easily as I do telehealth visits for patients that live two blocks away. Right. Um, so if patients are interested, one, talk to your oncologist and say, hey, is there a fertility specialist that I can um, talk to about these things? Or you can, you know, contact someone like myself who has expertise in this area. Excellent. Excellent. So if you're watching and you don't live in the Denver area, you heard it here. You can still reach out. That's excellent. We do have another question. Let's see. Are there any organizations out there that assist with preservation or storage? Yes. And so I think the fertility clinic that you work with may have some resources for you. Um, So in our practice, we do have some financial help for the fertility preservation technique and the storage. Um, When we have patients that, um, freeze sperm with us. We also work with a long-term storage facility to provide a discounted price to men who want to have their sperm frozen for a prolonged period of time. So I think um, there are some organizations and um, some other uh, places to find some financial assistance. And maybe starting with your um, fertility team would be a good starting point. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you again for the questions, everyone. These are awesome. Is your offer is your office offering discounts for consults 
to cancer survivors? Yeah, so those are um, questions. I, you know, I don't really focus much on the financial side yeah. of the, the process. I have fantastic folks in my practice um, that do all of the financial consults. And many times for cancer patients and survivors, they will all preemptively do a financial consult, see what insurance coverage, what the cost would be even before a patient um, oh, comes wow. to see me for their initial consultation. So the, because I have so much experience with cancer patients and we understand um, the acuity of their care. Um, we have a whole triage system within our practice. So if we have a cancer patient who wants to have a consultation, I see them within 24 or 48 hours. And it does um, start a chain reaction in our practice where we have a very um, streamlined process for them to get scheduled with me. And that will um, sort of start the financial conversation with the folks in my practice that really are experts on that. I try to focus on the right. medical side because I have really good people on the yeah. um, financial side that can help with that. So they'll be able to contact the person um, even before they come in for that consultation. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I'm wondering about proactive steps. What are proactive steps that someone could take to give themselves the best shot at having a positive fertility outcome. Yes. Um, so a couple of things that I would advise would be, you know, we know that lifestyle is such a huge factor, just yeah. in overall health, but we also know that for fertility. So, you know, being having a healthy diet, having a healthy BMI, especially for women, um, because we know that weight in pregnancy and what your starting BMI is can have some impacts on having a safe pregnancy. Um, so having a healthy weight, having a healthy lifestyle, I'm always a proponent of exercise um, and sort of mental wellness. Um, the other things that I would advise folks is to make sure that, you know, your annual exam is up to date. You've had a head to toe exam yeah. in the last year. If I have women who are um, a little bit older, if they're due for a mammogram, you know, making mm -hmm. sure that all of the routine wellness things are taken care of um, as we're thinking about starting a family. Um, mm -hmm. For women who are planning on starting a family being on a prenatal vitamin, folic yeah. acid is in a prenatal vitamin, and that's important to prevent neural tube um, defects or issues mm -hmm. with the way that the baby's neural um, spine forms. Also, women should be on DHA, which is omega-3 or fish oil, and being on 200 milligrams of DHA is important for the fetal brain to develop. Um, and then for cancer survivors, um, to, you know, even if you don't necessarily go down the path of fertility treatment, talking to your gynecologist about, hey, maybe it's worthwhile for me to see a maternal fetal medicine doctor, get mm -hmm. that preconception counseling, because certain types of cancer treatments, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation, can impart pregnancy complications. So you want to know that ahead of time so that you know, hey, I got X chemotherapy, that means that uh, one of the long-term right. effects might be something on my heart. And we know in pregnancy, mm. the, a woman's 
blood volume increases by 50% because so much blood is getting pumped through the placenta and in, in order to you know have the baby grow appropriately and in order for a woman to get that blood to the placenta she has to have a really healthy heart so if I know gosh I got this chemotherapy before that means that I might have some issues in pregnancy, does that mean that I need to have extra monitoring in pregnancy? And a maternal fetal medicine doctor can play out a surveillance plan in pregnancy um, so that going into even sort of the preconception period, um, we're equipping um, you know, patients with the best information to put them in the, in the best position of being successful. Interesting, so beyond even having your eggs frozen or, or your sperm, Mm-hmm. There could be other complications that result from radiation and correct. And so that's kind of the second part of it. That's right, exactly. And and knowing that ahead of time and having yeah. an active plan, um, I think can also give people peace of mind knowing that, hey, you might not need a fertility specialist like myself. Even yeah. for folks that have gone through fertility preservation, I do tell them this does not preclude you from achieving a natural pregnancy. We have this as a potential for pregnancy in the future if you need to use them. And having sort of a pregnancy plan in mind about, you know, what are my unique risks in pregnancy? And, you know, how are my providers going to put me in the best position of having a successful outcome? Yeah, excellent. Well, I usually like to close this Beyond Cancer series by giving the person I'm interviewing a chance to share anything that I haven't asked about. If there's a, a topic that I haven't brought up, I figure we kind of close with that. If there's a, mm. I don't know, a tip, a, a question that you're often asked that we haven't asked here, um, advice. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Thank you, Gail, for that question. I think as a final, um, f- my final comments would be it, going through this process, um, whether it's a cancer survivor who's now facing infertility, or even I take care of infertile um, patients that have no medical problems too. The reality yeah. is that infertility is very common and you're not alone. One mm. out of eight people are facing infertility or difficulty getting pregnant. Wow. A lot of people are seeking fertility assessments and maybe even fertility treatments and doing your homework and finding out you know, what's going to be a good fit for you in terms of who's the best provider that's going to walk with me along this journey? What's the right practice for me? What's their success? How am I going to have a successful outcome? And what other, you know, support services and resources are available in that particular practice? One of the things that I feel so fortunate about in in my work at CCRM is that we have so much support services. So I have a whole team of genetic counselors. So if I have some cancer patients that have a genetic predisposition to their cancer, they mm. might be interested in doing genetic screening of embryos. That's known as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. That way we can identify which embryos might have the same cancer gene, and then we can um, 
preferentially transfer unaffected embryos. I have a whole team of genetic counselors that kind of shepherd patients through that. But we also understand that um, it's an emotional process and we have a yeah. tremendous amount of resources. I have licensed counselors in our practice that specialize in fertility issues and pregnancy loss, and they are available to patients as they go through the entire process from the moment that patients come into the office to the moment that they graduate from me. So finding yeah. finding a place that's going to be a good fit for you, I think is really helpful. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, this has been super informative for me and I can tell from the questions and from those who are watching that it has been super informative. Well, it, was, it was such an honor to be with you, Gail, and with everybody today. So thank you for inviting me to participate this afternoon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer. For more information about Epic Experience and our programs, or to donate, please visit our website at epicexperience.org. Music for this podcast is provided by Moonshiner Collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us so we can share our story with more people. Also, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you'll know when new episodes are released. We hope you come back and join us for our next episode. Valentine.